Hello, fellow foodies. Welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quaid, and I am so excited to be speaking with Amy Stewart. She is the best-selling author of both fiction and nonfiction works. You may recognize some of her popular nonfiction titles in the realm of botany, such as The Drunken Botanist and Wicked Plants and Flower Confidential. We're going to dive into some wicked plants that fascinate us, that both can be found in the wild, some of them are in your backyard, and sometimes you can even find them at the bar. Um, let me tell you a bit more about Amy. She is also the New York Times bestselling author of the Cop Sisters series, which is based on a true story of America's first female deputy sheriffs and her two rambunctious sisters. Her popular nonfiction titles include the ones I described before. And while those haven't been adapted for TV yet, there are a few bars around the world that are actually named after the drunken botanist, which is even better. Um, her books have sold over a million copies worldwide and have been translated into 17 languages. She lives in Portland um, with her husband, who is a rare book dealer and can usually be found around their bookshop, Downtown Brown Books. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Amy. It's really great to see you. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. So I guess my first question is, what drew you to start writing about plants, especially these particular types of plants? Well, um, I had... I had written a memoir about my first garden in Santa Cruz, California. And this is, it's been almost 20 years now since I wrote that book. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, one book leads to another. And that's been true throughout my whole writing career that the, you know, the, the idea for one book can always be found in the previous book. So it's like, I wrote this memoir about gardening um, and I had a little bit in there about earthworms and then I wrote a book about earthworms. And while <laughs> I was researching that, I stumbled across someone in the um, uh, cut flower horticulture industry, which led to Flower Confidential and a botanist I was interviewing for that book mentioned something about poisonous plants and you know so it's it's kind of like one thing leads to the next but in every case um, I'm really approaching this like a journalist I mean I I don't have a science background I go around and I interview scientists you know I I always tell people I don't actually know anything I just talk to people who know things so um, but what I try to bring to it though is um, some storytelling um, so like Wicked Plants is a book about sort of the dark side of the plant world, but I'm not really looking to write a field guide or a toxicology mm -hmm. manual. I'm more looking to tell stories. So it's like, it doesn't matter that it could kill you. I want to know who it has killed. And I'm I see. tell yeah. the story of that person. It's, so it's that kind of approach. That's awesome. Well, yeah. out of those stories, like, are, are there any particular zingers that you really want to share with us? I know you wrote a bit about plants like ricin and oleander. Um, what are some of your favorite stories around, around plant poisons? Well, you know, what I was trying to do is I was always looking for like, what is the story that we don't know? Like, what is the thing that people haven't heard? Um, what I, I teach a class on research methods for writers. And one of the things I always tell people is go to the Wikipedia page to find out what not to write about. Because <laughs> those are the <laughs> people already know and so one of the things I love to do was go through really old medical journals oh uh, which have been digitized and so if you live near a good research library you can go park yourself in front of one of their terminals and you can dig through this stuff that only really academics have access to but so like uh, hemlock for instance like we all think about you know we all think about 
uh, Socrates, Socrates being to death, mm-hmm. right? Just death penalty, and that's how they killed him. But um, I found this story of a of a man who's who was a, a tailor in Scotland two hundred years ago, and his uh, his children made him a sandwich, and they put hemlock in the sandwich, probably thinking it was parsley because the two look very much alike, and he died. Mm-hmm. Um, which is terrible, but the point of Wicked Plants is that I'm always sort of taking this morbid delight in other people's misfortunes because it means that I have another story to tell. So I'm like, and his children killed him. But um, but but the point is that you know these plants very often they mimic plants that we do eat, or they're closely related. Like hemlock mm-hmm. is very closely related to parsley and carrots, and I. I spoke to another guy actually who lives here in the Pacific Northwest where I live, who poisoned himself unintentionally with hemlock because he was pulling up carrots in his garden and one Mm. came up and it was white, not orange, but that's not unusual. There's all different Mm -hmm. colors of carrots. And uh, he ate a little bit of it and was driving to visit some friends and noticed that his eyes weren't tracking back and forth. And that's a type of paralysis that's Mm. common hemlock and thank goodness he got off the road in time called poison control got to the emergency room in time he's a survivor of hemlock poisoning and it's so interesting to be able to talk to someone who survived because well most people don't yeah yeah wow wow and so when you were picking the plants to feature in your book like how did you go about picking which ones did you just see what were the most interesting stories in the in the historic literature or yeah yeah yeah, that's kind of it. So I start out trying to kind of make my short list. And there's obvious ones like how do, how do you not include hemlock, right? So yeah. I'm sort of, I'm sort of sifting through toxicology manuals and, you know, just in other ways trying to kind of hit some highlights and go, yeah, this probably looks good. And the the ironic thing is that so I wrote Wicked Plants, and right after that, I wrote a book called Wicked Bugs, because mm-hmm. when you're researching poisons, you get into venoms really quickly, like the two kind of sit side by side. Mm-hmm. So um, the ironic thing is that with plants, we tend to be so trusting of plants. We think, you know, anything that's green and grows out of the ground, it's all natural and it's organic, so it must be good for you. And we'll put anything in our mouth. If you're out on a hike with someone and you know, your friend pops a berry off a shrub and goes, here, try this. You might just put it in your mouth, which is a crazy thing to do. Like, you never <laughs> do that. Yeah. Um, but with bugs, we're disproportionately terrified of them, right? Like most insects and spiders can't hurt us at all, and yet we run screaming out of the room. Well, when I was putting my preliminary list together, I realized it's actually just the opposite. Like I had way too many plants that I could possibly include but I had a really hard time coming up with enough insects or spiders that actually can harm people. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a, um, it was a surprise for me. Yeah. There's, there's so much interesting science in that field of venom studies. I know I have some colleagues that look to um, like, they're like these sea snail venoms that can paralyze their prey and they're trying to use those venoms to understand pain receptors and lots of cool stuff with those. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, in both cases, it's a defense mechanism, right? So Mm -hmm. for plants, as well as insects, they're just trying not to get eaten, which is entirely understandable. We would do the same thing in their position, but they make such an interesting and really diverse variety of chemicals when they do that. Mm -hmm. And there is so much that we have yet to learn about the, the, the mechanisms 
behind all of that. Behind all so their work. Great field of study for sure. That's great. Yeah. And so out of all these poisons that you researched, how many of them or what proportion were consumed or eaten versus how many can cause damage by contact? Oh, right. There's, you know, there's not as many that have what they might call transdermic effects. Um, one that I think is sort of interesting um, would be a, a datura or, you know, more mm -hmm. generally the, the nightshades. So the nightshade family is a family of plants that I love because it does include things like potatoes and tomatoes, which yeah. we love to eat. It also includes tobacco. So like that's really intriguing that tobacco's in there. But then there's also deadly nightshade, which is called Atropa belladonna, and a few other datures that are just straight up poisonous and, and don't mm -hmm. create any food for us. So it's like such an interesting, diverse plant family. And, you know, we joke about or not joke about, but we always think it's sort of funny that when um, Europeans first came to the Americas and, and they saw tomatoes for the first time, because that's a new world. Uh, mm -hmm. New world plant. Uh-huh that they assumed they were poisonous and it's like oh how ridiculous of them but they were being very smart right yeah they looked at it and they said i know that's a nightshade and nightshades are dangerous and they were they were being very intelligent about it but um yeah so a lot of those plants do have transdermal effects i um got very interested in tobacco just as a plant and i remember one time i was driving through uh kentucky and i see all these tobacco fields and i'm like stop the car stop the car i want to go look at that and i go running out into some guy's tobacco field and the the plants are bigger than me and a single leaf is like bigger than your head i mean they're just wow they're massive they're these enormous kind of and really just sticky plants they're just so weird looking so i was very interested to just be in a field of them and i wanted my picture taken and so the guy's kind of like who I'm with is sort of messing with this camera. It's taken forever. And I just put my arms around the plants, like, you know, like we're at a high yeah. school reunion together or something. <laughs> and I got back into the car and I was dizzy. My heart was racing. I was a wow. little numb. And I realized like, I just had two very large nicotine patches on my body. You know, that's what that was. Yeah. Um, and for people who work in the tobacco fields, it's called green tobacco sickness. And it's a real danger, um, especially if you're someone like me who doesn't have a tolerance at all for nicotine. It <laughs> doesn't take much. And that, that can actually be fatal. And the same is true of, of very beautiful daturas, sometimes called moonflowers that we grow in our gardens, that if you were to really roll around in them, you'd start to feel it. Um, you might be dizzy and worst case scenario, you could actually have respiratory problems or, or cardiac problems with that. And that's all coming in through the skin. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And I think you're right. I think most people don't, don't necessarily recognize the, the danger of some of these natural, um, these, these plants in nature, you know, if, you kind of, you're told as a child, avoid the red berry, you know, don't eat the red berry, but you're not told about like touching things and, and, and other things not to eat. That's great. Yeah. Well, one of the things I was so impressed with, with your, with your book was also the spin out that came out of this work into science education, into museum exhibits. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that's kind of an unusual thing to see a, a book go from you know, being at the press and then becoming this amazing traveling science exhibit. How did that all come together? Yeah, it was a, that was kind of a really unexpected, cool thing that happened. Um, it started with individual botanical gardens creating their own little exhibit 
based on the book with living plants that are in their collection. Um, every botanical garden has poisonous plants in their collection. Like they're just going to because so many plants have defense mechanisms. Yeah. Um, but they never really had a way to talk about that. And if anything, maybe felt a little nervous about talking about it. But um, the New York Botanic Garden started it and I actually sort of bullied the executive director into doing it. I met him and we were standing in their garden. I'm like, you have so many of my plants here. I see Master <laughs> Bean, I see this. I'm like, you should do a thing. I have this book coming out next year. And they did. And then everybody wanted to do one. Um, but then I got a call from the North Carolina Arboretum and they wanted to do a indoor traveling exhibit that was not dependent upon having living plants that were in bloom mm -hmm. and looking good. So, they, so they made this thing. And I mean, this took years to do and they had to raise a lot of money and hundreds of people were involved in making this, but it's like a, it's like a haunted house Ooh. that you, and you wander through it and like someone has been killed by a poisonous plant or someone's going to kill someone by a poisonous plant. And you have to figure it out for yourself. It's not like an exhibit where there's a thing in a box and a panel on the wall telling you what to think about it. Like you have to open drawers and look through magnifying glasses. And there's, there are some little kind of touchscreeny things, but they're cool and spooky. They look like little holograms of ghostly figures and like oh, even the paintings are original paintings. They're like famous paintings, but they've been transformed into poisonous plants. Mm -hmm. So it's a very That's cool awesome. thing that you kind of just wander through and do. And so that travels and it goes to science museums all over the country. And what I didn't, the thing I didn't know about, like the educational component of all this is that there are these sort of like curriculums and there's a you know, there's a certain, so, so like it, it meets certain educational objectives so that kids can come through and it's like mm -hmm. a field trip. So that was really fun to do. And, you know, I think the reason why it worked actually is that I didn't have any educational objectives when I set off to do it. And mm -hmm. I've talked some with, um, with academics and educators about this. You know, I was purely in it for the entertainment value. The more entertaining it was, the more shocking and surprising it was, the more people would want to read it. And that's my job, right? My job yeah. is to get in front of people and to, and to have people love it. So um, I think when you come at it that way, what that means is, for one thing, you don't have to be complete. Like, I was free to leave stuff out. God, that's boring. You know, I can gloss over certain things. Like, they can learn that somewhere else if they want to know it. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a, I think coming at it as an entertainer first just changes the priorities. But, yeah, it's a great way into the subject and, and a way into um, biology and botany and chemistry, but also history. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a lot of fun. Well, I love I love the tactile element and the fact that the the museum goers become the investigator and are digging yeah. through the clues. That's great. Yeah, it's really good. And the nice thing is, it works for all ages. Well, actually, little little kids are actually frightened by it. So you sort of oh. have to, there's, a, there's a there's a sort of like dead grandma who's slumped over the table, and a very small child will burst into tears at the sight of that. Oh, so there's there's that issue, but um, but uh. The nice thing is that, like, the bored teenager who doesn't want to be at the science museum is super into this. This is the and, hook. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. for adults as well, there's definitely little jokes that only adults are going to get. So it's it's like Rocky and Bullwinkle, you know? It, like, works on a bunch of different age levels. So, yeah, it's great for that. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. really great. 
So, okay, we've talked a lot about poisons. Let's talk about a different kind of poison of the drunken <laughs> botanist, right? So how did you how did you dive into this material? And do you have any particular plants that you find are the 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 best uh, as ingredients for different botanical cocktails? Yeah, so um, Drunken Botanist is very much the same thing. Um, in Wicked Plants, there's a little chapter called The Devil's Bartender that's about um, poisonous or, or supposedly poisonous plants that end up in booze. Mm -hmm. And so between that and actually just sort of a conversation I was having with another um, sort of plant geek in a liquor store, I just kind of realized like, oh, all these bottles have nothing but plants in them. Like there's literally nothing in a bottle of gin except a whole bunch of plants that have just been distilled and extracted. So it just got me sort of interested again in the same kind of questions. Like uh, what is this plant? Why? When did we decide to turn it into booze? Why? <laughs> what, what is it about this plant that lends itself to being made into alcohol? And um, I was a little bit kind of in touch with the, you know, the craft cocktail movement and the mixology movement. What I knew about those folks is that they were very interested in all these ingredients, like obsessively geeky, interested, yeah. but they had no botany and really didn't know kind of what they were talking about, honestly. Um, there's a big cocktail conference in New Orleans every year called Tales of the Cocktail. And I would go to Tales and sit in these presentations and it's like, wow, they don't know the basics of like plant taxonomy, which why should they? They're bartenders, bless yeah. their hearts. Um, but I knew how to get to those people. So I knew how to go find the botanist who studied gentian or, mm -hmm. to, you know, any particular plant. There's a botanist somewhere in the world who's devoted her life to it and you can go talk to her. And so that was my goal was to make a bridge between the like geeky booze world and the geeky plant world and get those two things talking to each other. Mm -hmm. No, that's fantastic. Yeah. And I, there's, I think it's another great teaching tool because just thinking about gin and you know, the role of juniper and essential oils in juniper and how that impacts flavor and then all the different steeping processes. I'm a big fan of um, of whiskeys, especially scotch whiskeys. And I've traveled to some of the places where they um, they distill. And it's it's interesting to see also how different flavors are added through peat. And um, yeah, there's just there's a lot of really uh, interesting botany involved in these beverages. Right. And, so, yeah. so you look at like barley, which is you need barley to make scotch. Mm -hmm. And there is a there is an international barley institute in Scotland where they're really looking at breeding a better barley for whiskey and breeding better grains for alcohol, which turns out to be the very opposite of the qualities we need mm -hmm. in grains for food. So like th that right there, it's like it's a really interesting plant science kind of quest that they're that they're on. And, um, and, and many of these plants kind of have a story like that, where maybe there's a particular variety that really lends itself to making alcohol. And there's a reason why we went down that road. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking also of other, other types of, of influences from things like woods, certain woods or certain species of Quercus, for example, you have the American oaks and you have the Spanish oaks and how those influence flavors um, as, as spirits are aged. 
there's, yeah, there's a lot going on with the chemistry yeah. of those and that translates Absolutely. to flavor, right? So, right. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So, um, when you, when you put a, a spirit, you take it out of the still and you put it in an oak barrel, like bourbon by law has to be made with a new American oak barrel that has never been used for anything else before. Mm -hmm. And so it's pulling a lot of these, uh, wonderful flavors out of the oak and you can test this and well i mean i can't but scientists can um and see that there really is oak tree dna floating around in that bottle every time you take a sip of bourbon you're drinking a little bit of oak tree in there as well yeah that's great that's great and and we have aged uh non-alcoholic uh fermented products i'm thinking of like balsamic vinegar is also aged in certain types of, of wood barrels there's mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting how you take all these different ingredients both the base ingredient and then combine it with other things to yield that final magical flavor so one of the things that's interesting about plants is that you have often this line between food, poison, and medicine, right? So you've covered both ends of the spectrum here with the food and the poison. What about medicine? Where do these kind of play a role? Well, you know, um, so when I was writing Wicked Plants, I went to London and I went to the Chelsea Physic Garden, which is, yeah, so great to go visit yeah. this place because it's been there for hundreds of years. It's right in the middle of London mm -hmm. and it got its start as an apothecary's garden, which means a pharmacist or a doctor's uh, garden. So, you know, I, I, have a, I have a great picture of the Chelsea Physic Garden just in full bloom. And I love to show it to people and say, you know, if you lived in London two or 300 years ago and you had the misfortune to get sick, this is Walgreens. Like, this is what we That's, had, right? This yeah. is your pharmacy. And all we had for medicine was plants until quite recently throughout human history. So what would happen is that, first of all, it was really important for pharmacists to be sure they could identify the plant. You don't want to make that mistake. And uh, yeah. it's, it's hard enough to identify a plant when you have a photograph. But when all you have is a drawing or a woodcut, it's really tough. So they would yeah. grow them just so you could see them up close in person and know what you were getting into. But they also grew poisonous plants so you could know the difference because mm -hmm. that was very important too. So um, something like foxglove digitalis is still used today as a heart medicine. Um, but that's, again, it's all about the dose and it's going to be poisonous to some of us. And for other people, it's actually very helpful as a, as a heart medication. Um, you know, quinine, uh, speaking of drunken botanist, you know, quinine in our tonic water and our gin and tonic, mm -hmm. that's the bark of the chinchona tree, which is a tree from South America that, uh, really does treat malaria. And so, you know, you go back to kind of the golden age of plant exploration and a lot of what those folks were doing as they were traveling around the world was desperately seeking medicines mm -hmm. to take back to Europe, including that one. So, yeah, you know, on, on, on one hand, we have um, poisonous plants that cross the line into medicine. And on the other hand, we have um, medicinal plants that have crossed the line into... <laughs> basically cocktails yeah so so um so like a, a, a cool thing i got to do when i was researching drunken botanist you, you'll notice a pattern here i'm always like what is the great travel i can get out of these books that's awesome um, with drunken botanist i was in france and i went to the chartreuse uh, monastery where they i've been there yes yeah. and i've hiked the silent mountain you can't speak yeah. it's a sacred spot yes amazing <laughs> right so um yeah so you probably know you know chartreuse is this uh, green or yellow herbal liqueur mm -hmm. 
it's quite nice. It's lovely to drink, but it definitely got its start as a medicine. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of these kind of medicinal brews, first of all, the reason they put them in alcohol, try to think about this. If the only, if you're a pharmacist and the only thing you have to give someone to treat their illness is a plant, well, that plant's not going to be in bloom year round. Mm-hmm. And if you dry a plant out, a lot of its active chemicals just evaporate. They go into the air and they go away. Um, that's why dried basil is no good in your pasta, right? All the good yeah. flavors leave as it's drying. They just they, they disappear. So they needed some way to keep the useful chemicals, even if it's the middle of winter and the plant's not in bloom. And it turns out that if you take a plant and you drop it into alcohol, uh, that's a solvent. And it'll pull out chemicals, good and bad. It's sort of indiscriminate, right? Anything that's in the plant that's alcohol soluble, it's just going to grab it. So it's not the best. It's not the best form of making medicine, but it's it's all they had. So pharmacists got to where they had this big inventory of basically herbs soaking in booze. Like that's mm-hmm. what they had to give you when you were sick. And a lot of them didn't taste very good. Um, because so, some of these plants, the active ingredient is quite bitter. I'm thinking, yeah. for instance, um, gentian, which is the root of a pretty little herb. Um, it actually does legitimately have some pharmaceutical value in terms of how it interacts with the digestive system. And um, it's that bitter component in Campari, for instance. Yeah. That, it tastes like you're biting into orange peel. And that is, that's gentian. So they have these plants, but they're pretty bitter and pretty nasty. So what are you going to do? Well, you're going to add some sugar to it, right? To mm-hmm. make the medicine go down. Like there's even a song about it. <laughs> and uh, and uh, pretty soon they're making these beautiful herbal liqueurs. So as medicine evolves and we get to where we have pills rather than plants, the herbal liqueurs stick around because people have gotten used to maybe tippling a little of their medicine into their brandy every night after dinner and Pretty yeah. soon the modern cocktail is born. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, and from this same area, you've you've got another very mystical um, uh, liqueur, and that's absinthe. Yes. What can you tell us about absinthe? Yeah, um, absinthe is so interesting. Um, if you've if you've never had it, it tastes like licorice. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're if you're like me and you always pick the black jelly beans out of the jelly beans because those are your favorite, you'll love absinthe. Uh, so that's its predominant flavor. But the um, sort of rumors about absinthe, that absinthe will make you go crazy and cut your ear off like Van Gogh, uh, (laughs) those rumors originate from a different plant that's in absinthe, which is Artemisia absinthum, um, commonly called wormwood. And this is Mm -hmm. a silver Mediterranean plant that you can grow in your garden. It's easy to find. Mm -hmm. It's got a bitter mentholated flavor. And so it's one of a bajillion plants that go into absinthe but it has a bad reputation um, for causing seizures and other medical problems that's entirely unfounded. Uh, the, 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 the little molecules that, that they're concerned with are um, there in such small quantities that it could not possibly hurt you. In fact, ordinary garden sage that you would use to stuff your Thanksgiving turkey has more of those same compounds than Artemisia Mm. absinthum does. So it's entirely nothing to worry about. It was completely overblown. And that's why today, thanks to, I guess, modern chemistry, um, absinthe is legal again in the United States and in Europe. But that's actually pretty recently that that's happened. That change happened. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so out of your explorations and your travels, have you have you had a favorite spot or a favorite type of liqueur that you've experienced in those places? 
Well, um, I do like all those gentian-based drinks, which include mm -hmm. Campari and include uh, Suze, S-U-Z-E, which is a, a French kind of wine-based aperitif that also has that wonderful bitter mm -hmm. quality to it. I mean, I think all those herbal liqueurs are very interesting. Um, but one plant that really kind of uh, won a place in my heart was actually sorghum. Oh, interesting. Okay. I know. Well, so here's my little, here's my little pro sorghum speech is it's a very kind of unglamorous grain. It's basically millet. So those mm -hmm. of you who are trying to like place this, if you can picture millet, um, uh, it's a it's a grain that doesn't have any gluten in it. So if you've eaten Ethiopian food, that mm -hmm. injera, the the flat bread, that's a sorghum based um, mm -hmm. bread product. Sorghum is such a hero because it grows. It can grow in places where there are famines. It's very drought resistant. It's very tough. It's very easy to grow. So it feeds people in times of famine, which I think is amazing. Yeah. But also. It's used, uh, I believe, and I had to like do a lot of math and try to gather a lot of figures, and I, I did the best I could to try to figure this out. But I believe that sorghum is the plant that is transformed into alcohol more than any other plant in the world, even really? grapes, even barley. And the reason for this is Africa and China, well, Asia in general. But in Africa, there's a lot of sorghum grown, and they make this homemade sorghum beer that's uh, live fermented. So, you know, a little bit like how uh, kombucha is sort of actively fermenting. Like you can't, um, you can't bottle it because the, it, it would explode, you know. The, the <laughs> it just keeps so going. Okay. The CO2 would keep building up, right? So it's sold in these like milk cartons that have little vents on them, but mostly people make it at home. And it's a very low alcohol home brew that's, a little bit yogurty, you know, a little bit of that kind of sour. Uh -huh. Anyway, people drink that all over Africa. And then in uh, in China, well, they make a lot of beer out of it, but also um, um, they make a, a, a high proof kind of white lightning sort of moonshiny spirit out of it called Baiju that's, um, that's uh, I've had it. I've, <laughs> I've actually had some of the best Baiju that is on offer. I, I don't know that I can recommend it, but they, <laughs> they love it in China. So anyway, um, great. <laughs> I just think we tend to be very Europe centric and very yeah. centric when we think about booze. But when you really get very global about it and when you look at Africa and when you look at Asia, you get a very different sense of what plants uh, get turned into alcohol. And use, yeah. And I, I can't recall um, if you included this in your book or not, but thinking of other other types of kind of home brews, did you do any research on cassava? And yes. and the can you tell us a bit about the cassava beers? Well, um, I probably can't tell you much more than the fact that uh, people make beer out of cassava. I mean, <laughs> cassava is just another great, you know, this is a big root, right? This is a big starchy root that sustains people. I mean, it feeds people. Um, you can make paper out of it. Uh, you can make beer out of it. So, yeah, you know, I love these plants that are just so very tied to, to human history and have um, have a connection with people that goes back not just decades, not just centuries, yeah. but even millennia. We have lived we have lived with these foods. Absolutely. And cassava is probably one of the earlier plants that humans ever made alcohol out of. That's great. Yeah. yeah. 
And it's also, you know, it's a, the, there are different varieties, but they're also poisonous. So they have to be processed. They have yes. that cyanide content. And so it's this really, I love the idea of how some people will grow otherwise poisonous plants, but then they can modify or reduce the poison through different processing techniques. And do you know why people would choose to grow poisonous plants uh, for food? Well, you know, I think, yeah, you, I mean, you're right. Something like, like cassava, where you do this process with pounding and leaching, mm -hmm. and there's all this stuff you have to do to make it safe to eat. And I'm sure that this was all born out of necessity, you know? I mean, if it's, if it's so abundant and um, relatively nutritious and perhaps even kind of easy to store. I could see how cassava root might be something you could keep in a, in a basement or something for a little while. Like you do potatoes, you can have a potato mm -hmm. cellar, a root cellar. Um, but you figure that out through a lot of human trial and error. Like a lot of centuries yeah. of trial and error. But yeah, I also love those foods that have some poisonous component. Like, you know, I think corn is so interesting. I mean, it's a very, we all eat corn, we all love corn, but if you were to eat nothing but corn morning, noon, and night, like if that was your soul, if all you had was some cornmeal in the cellar and that had to get you through the winter, you could develop uh, what's called pellagra, which is a niacin deficiency, a B vitamin deficiency, that's actually quite dangerous and, and ultimately fatal. And this started to happen in Eastern Europe. You know, mm. we, we Europeans showed up um, in, in the Americas and uh, and took one look at corn, which was another one of these new world crops like like uh, tomatoes and said, oh, that's fantastic. Great. We'll take it and go running back off to Europe with it without bothering to learn from native people. It's also possible that native people did not bother to tell the <laughs> Europeans that uh, you got to be careful with corn. You got to combine it. So like combining corn and beans or the traditional recipe for um, for uh, tortillas, you know, they all had special methods of processing corn because you can't rely on it morning, noon, and night. And what's so great about that story is that when corn ended up in Eastern Europe and they started seeing these pellagra outbreaks, and of course they didn't know what it was or what caused it, it looks like that's where some of the early vampire myths got started. Oh, interesting. Yes because a pellagra victim looks a lot like a vampire. <laughs> some of the behaviors are similar. So anytime I can work vampires into a plant book, I'm very happy. I'm always grabbing that stuff. Well, it's great. It's good because we're almost to, you know, we're into that fall Halloween season. Yeah, so it's exactly. good to think about those. Any, any other spooky plants that come to mind? I love the story about pellagra. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think they're all kind of spooky in a way. Um, you know, you look at, you look at plants like henbane, which have this, and mandrake, which, mm -hmm. you know, have this long, uh, history and stories of witchcraft. And so those are the kinds of plants that tend to come up a lot at, at Halloween. And, um, and really it's, it's, it's plants that are hallucinogens that tend to get conflated with these myths about, about witchcraft and contacting the spirit world. And so we, we hear a lot of that around Halloween. <laughs> it's, uh, it's psychoactive plants, which is, a, which is a, a whole other aspect to the whole wicked plant, poisonous plant topic for sure. I get really excited when I hear about magical plants because that usually means there's some pretty cool chemistry there. And sometimes right. that chemistry turns out to be something that could be potentially poisonous or even medicinal. Yeah, yeah. definitely.
Yeah, cool. Well, um, I, I guess as we wrap up, I have my question for you is, you know, what's next? You have this amazing stream of ideas upon ideas with your book series. And um, what do you have cooking now? Anything you can share with us? Well, um, I'm writing a series right now. Um, it's based on a true story. And I have to tell you, this is another one of those every book finds the, you know, the seeds to the next book. Um, if, if you read Drunken Botanist very closely, you'll see a gin smuggler mentioned named Henry Kaufman. And as I was researching that guy, I stumbled across an unrelated story, probably a different guy by the same name, um, and entirely unrelated to plants. But I, it, I found the story of this woman who was a deputy sheriff 100 years ago. And I got real interested in her, and I just got kind of real sucked into her story. So I've been writing these novels about her, about her real life, like many novels. Like, she had a super interesting life. There's wow. a lot of books here. Um, and so, yeah, I just started the eighth um, book in that series. So it's kind of taken over my life in a very unexpected way. That's fascinating and really exciting. Well, thank you so much, Amy, for coming on the show. This has been so much fun to talk about wicked plants, boozy plants, medicines, poisons, and everything in between. Thank you. This was great. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Skype during the COVID-19 isolation period. If you want to learn more about Amy's books, check out her website. It's at www.amystewart.com. She's also on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so be sure to check those out. Um, in the meantime, also be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Check us out on the Teach Ethnobotany YouTube channel where we'll have a video version of the episode as well. Thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>